mentioned butterflies earlier The Lives of Butterflies A Natural History of Our Planet's Butterfly Life is a new book which showcases the extraordinary diversity of the world's butterflies while exploring their life histories behaviour conservation and other aspects of these most fascinating and beguiling insects Co-author and Associate Professor of Entomology at Washington State University David James spoke with Aina Nilauna earlier Hello, Aina. It's very nice to speak to you. David, have you always been interested in butterflies? Well, I've, I've been a butterfly person all my life. I was eight years old, and, and as you can probably tell from my accent, I used to live in England, and I, I found caterpillars in the garden uh, feeding on my parents' um, flowers, um, and I was intrigued by these woolly bear caterpillars and uh, decided to rear them out, and they produced beautiful garden tiger moths, and... Uh, I was captivated by that, and uh, so I went to university with the aim of uh, of becoming, if not a butterfly person, an insect person. So, you know, the butterflies led me to, you know, become uh, enamoured by insects generally. And so, so yeah, I'm I'm one of the few butterfly people that. Um, have uh, developed an interest um, in butterflies in childhood. Actually, there's more in the UK and Ireland uh, that, that have done that, you know, during their childhood than, say, here in America. But, yeah, it's, it's been a lifetime of butterflies for me. Now, it's great to have an expert because on this programme, we're all supposed to be the experts and we are generally experts, but to have a real expert on a particular subject is great. So I'm going to ask you all the questions that people have been asking me and I've been trying to get around them for years. Now, the first question is, what exactly is a butterfly as opposed to a moth? Or is there any such thing as a butterfly as such? Is it just a subset of moths? Well, actually, butterflies are a subset of moths. Um, they did originate from moths. Moths were the original butterflies, if you like. Um, but we can separate butterflies today from the moths by a number of criteria. Um, but unfortunately, there's no single criteria that will work for every um, butterfly. The best one is um, looking at the antennae of the butterfly or moth that you have in your hand or, or you can see in the, on the flower. And if it has a, a clubbed antenna, then that is going to be a butterfly. If it's a, a wiry antenna or feathery antenna, then that's going to be a moth. That works for like 99% of butterflies and moths probably, but you know there, there are the occasional exceptions. There are seven families of butterflies and one of them, the moth-like ones that appear at crepuscular times, were often classified before this as moths and they, of course, have, have the different antennae. But what they also have, which I thought was fascinating, they have hearing organs on their wings. Tell me more. Yes, they do. Um, and also with some species on, on their legs as well. So, so yeah, it, it sort of challenges our concept of uh, where hearing organs should be. But, um, but yeah, I mean, butterflies have adapted over millennia to different situations. And so that, that's just part of their adaptation. We have had a huge range in size in butterflies looking at your book. The, the biggest one seems to have a wingspan of... 30 centimetres, which is a foot in old money. This is the Queen Alexander birdwing, Ocean New Guinea. Is that the biggest one? I mean, that seems a massive size for a butterfly. Yes, that birdwing, and there's, there's some other birdwing species too, are the largest butterflies in the world. And uh, yeah, they're, they're truly 
huge, massive, as you say. But in temperate regions, we don't see butterflies anywhere near that size. Um, it's in the tropics that you get the bird wings. And so most butterflies are more of the size that, that you and I are familiar with. And, and there's some very small ones as well that most people actually don't see, you know, um, because they're so small and they fly fast and, uh, and you don't actually see them until they settle on a flower or something. Why are the huge ones in the tropics? Has it to do with the fact that the weather is warmer and that they being cold-blooded creatures get enough energy to fly that in more northern climes they're lucky to fly at all, never mind to have huge big wings activated by our lesser sun? Or is there other reasons? Has it to do with food? Yes, it's probably to do with um, uh, being able to produce generation after generation in the tropics. You know, they they can continue breeding all year. So they've had opportunities to evolve faster than, than butterflies in temperate regions. So, you know, the large wings obviously are advantageous to the butterflies that have them, um, but maybe not to all species. So, yeah, that's an interesting question that, you know, we don't really know why there are some butterflies with very large wings, um, but it must have, you know, something to do with their, their ability to survive and, uh, and also to attract mates probably to, to make themselves very visible to the opposite sex. That's all fine and dandy, attracting the opposite sex, but you could be attracting predators as well if you have great big wings and movement. And I, and they seem to operate their wings together. I mean, is the front wing connected or tied on in some way to the back wing so that they, they fly as one unit rather than as in dragonflies where all the four wings fly independently? Yes, they, they have a coupling mechanism where the four wings um, all, you know, connect. And, uh, and again, that, that's something that's evolved over millennia again. Um, butterflies actually don't really need the hind wings, uh, the lower wings. They, they can actually fly with just the, the four wings, the, the front wings. Um, but having the hind wings allows them to be more manoeuvrable um, and able to escape predators probably better if they have that manoeuvrability. So again, it, it's something that you know has happened over time and the plan of a butterfly now is, is the, the best plan there is for a butterfly. So that the, their anatomy then allows this to happen, that the, the, the wings are joined together front and back, which is unusual and doesn't happen in other four-winged insects. Correct. Yes. I mean, it's something that, that sets them apart from other insects that, that have four wings. So, yeah, uh, the moths, we can put them in the same group as well. But uh, they, they don't use their wings in quite the same way as but most butterflies do. Um, and as we said at the beginning, butterflies are an offshoot of moths anyway. A much smaller group as well. I mean, there's far more moths species than there are butterflies. The butterflies, of course, are the adult of the group. They start off as eggs, you have your caterpillars, you have your chrysalis, and then finally you have your butterflies. I always thought that they didn't eat as butterflies, that they did all their eating as caterpillars. That was like filling the tank up with petrol. And when they ran out of energy, that was it. But you have an excellent chapter in the book about butterflies, what they eat and how much they actually need to use high energy sugary drinks like nectar. Now, do they actually have stomachs and intestines? Do they produce wastes and droppings? What kind of a digestive system have butterflies? They have their proboscis, which they stick into the flowers to receive the nectar. What happens after that? 
Well, the nectar gets transported through a very simple um, alimentary canal, you know, a gut system, um, and, and absorbed into the tissues as, you know, as in any other animal. But the whole system is very simplified. Um, so it's just one tube going through the body, basically. And, and yes, they do excrete at the other end. All butterflies, I believe feed as adults um, unlike moths where some don't and, and as you you know indicated you know they get all their energy from the caterpillar stage uh, these particular moths but but butterflies yes um, are obviously well known for feeding on flowers um, and taking nectar um, sugary solutions um, which is what they need for survival um, and of course in their quest for nectar they also um, act as pollinators they, they feed on nectar indeed, and I can see why. But apparently, reading further in that chapter, I discovered that they feed on crocodile tears, they feed on urine, they feed on blood, on dung. What are they at? Why don't they stick to the flowers? What's going on? What are they doing with the crocodile tears? Is it that they're not a dangerous thing? Will the crocodiles not gobble them? Tell us more. Yes, it's a, it's a little known fact, I guess, that, that butterflies, particularly male butterflies, I have to admit that it, it is the male of the, of the species that prefers, well, not prefers, but they need some other food as well. And, and what they're seeking is things like salts and minerals. So the crocodile tears is, you know, a source of salt for the butterflies. And the reason the males need these extra things is it helps them with their reproduction. They're able to mate more often and more effectively if they have these additional salts and minerals um, alongside the nectar. And in fact, some male butterflies actually present the female with a gift of uh, minerals and salts in a package uh, along with the sperm when they mate. So, you know, there's a method to their madness, I guess, that, that they will feed on these other things, but, but for a reason. And uh, you mentioned crocodile tears, but there's lots of other things that they'll go for too, like uh, animal drop-ins, mud. They, they get a lot of uh, minerals and salts from, from just mud. Sometimes you'll see butterflies just drinking from wet mud. Um, and that's, again, males looking for minerals and salts. Do they actually land on the crocodile's face to drink the tears? I'm just trying to imagine this. And what has the crocodile got to say about it? Yes, I, I, th I think the crocodile's probably, you know, not really worried about the butterflies. He's thinking of uh, larger pieces of food, probably. And so, yeah, the, the butterflies, um, you know, just come and go and uh, the, the crocodiles don't take any notice at all. Other animals um, around their eyes too, um, butterflies will sometimes get the salt from. And the other thing that they do that interests us as people is that if you're out hiking and you're sweaty, they will often land on your arm and drink the sweat from your arm. It can actually be quite annoying sometimes in, in not leaving you alone uh, because they're so fixated on getting their, their shot of salt. But anyway, moving on to their, their mating, you have a whole uh, section on that, obviously. I was interested that the environmentalist Miriam Rothschild described monarch males as male chauvinist pigs. Without any batting an eyelid, this is what she says, they're male chauvinist pigs. So what are the male monarchs doing to warrant such a description by Miriam Rothschild? Well, it's well-deserved, really, because uh, the male monarch is, is very different from many other male butterflies. Many other male butterflies um, serenade their 
female partner with pheromones and uh, and courtship dances and uh, all the romantic things that you might think the butterflies do. Um, and that, that is the case with, with most butterfly species. But the male monarch is an exception to that. Um, and there's probably others, but this the male monarch is the most uh, familiar and most famous example of this where... It dispenses with the use of pheromones. Um, they used to use pheromones, apparently, because they still have the organs that produce pheromones, but they're not functioning anymore. So instead, the male monarch simply grabs the female, and often in midair, they'll be flying, and the male will see a female flying and just land on top of her in midair and drag her to the ground, just fall to the ground and forcibly mate with her on the ground with uh, no preamble, no no pheromones, no no romantic courtship at all. But it's basically um, rape. And that's what Miriam Rothschild was referring to when she, she called the male monarch the nature's prime example of a male chauvinist pig. Yeah, apparently it's not only females that they jump on. They, they jump on other males. They jump on other species of butterflies. Anything that moves seems to be prey for them because the females don't want to be mated more than once or twice, whereas these males can seem to do it all day, every day. And the female monarchs, apparently, you were saying in the book, once they've got mated, they come out early in the morning before the males are up and they keep close to the ground so they'll be out of their radar and they generally avoid them. But at least the male monarch doesn't insert a chastity belt as other species of butterflies do. The males put a chastity belt on the female when they've mated with her so nobody else can get nearer. Who does that? Which ones do that? Yes, they're, they're a group of mountain butterflies called Parnassians or Apollo butterflies. And there's some in Europe, um, not in Ireland, unfortunately, or, or Britain. But in, in the Swiss Alps, you'll find these butterflies. And there's some in North America too, these Apollo butterflies. And yes, you're, you're exactly right. They've actually gone a step further. Their courtship is, is much more moderate than the, the monarch courtship. So it, it's quite pleasant. Um, but when it's finished, the male, you know, needs to preserve his genetic material. He wants to be the last mater, if you like, for that particular female. And so to ensure that another male doesn't usurp his genes, he will put a chastity belt on the butterfly. And uh, this chastity belt is, it's not really a belt, of course, it's actually a, he secretes um a structure, I guess is the best way to describe it, that, that covers the male, uh, sorry, the female's um, reproductive parts so that no other male can mate with her. And so that's that's how he leaves her. So, you know, she's, she's mated once um, with that successful male and he ensures that his genetic material will be the material that will produce the progeny uh, between that female and male. So... It's, it's quite a remarkable thing, really, but um, it, it's confined to just that group of butterflies. We know that birds migrate, they come to breed and they go to warmer countries, but apparently lots of different butterflies do this too. This, this, these famous monarchs we were speaking of migrate up and down the length of, of North America, but on this side of the waters we have the painted ladies, the, the small tort, not the painted ladies and the red admirals that do this as well. And in the case of birds, we know lots about them because we've been putting rings on their legs for a hundred years and finding them and knowing where they went. But lately, it it appears that you can tag butterflies too. 
That must be a great leap if you can tag a migrating butterfly and see where it goes. Yes, indeed. Um, it's revolutionised the, the way we think about migrating butterflies. Um, it's mostly being done with the monarch butterfly. I mean, the butterfly's got to be large enough, and the monarch is large. It's, it has a three to four inch wingspan. So there is enough room to put a small adhesive tag label, um, which is what we do. And on that label um, is an email address and a, a serial number, um, and, and it stands out. We, we put it on the hind wing of the butterfly, um, and so when it's on a flower with its wings up you can see it and people see these butterflies and these days of course with iPhones and cheap cameras they will take pictures and and send us picture to the email address on the tag and so from from this tagging we've we've learned a lot about the monarch butterfly and its uh, migration particularly here in western North America where I am um, but also the migration to to Mexico the, the famous colonies there as well unfortunately the tags are a bit too large at this point to put on painted lady butterflies because they're about half the size but excitingly there's new technology coming along where we may in the future be able to put radio chips on the butterfly you know, we're trying to make them small enough at the moment and we haven't quite got there but soon they will be small enough to be able to put on a, a butterfly like a painted lady and to be able to track them electronically with the tags the, the label tags um, we have to tag a lot of butterflies to get um, you know, a few recoveries. Um, but with electronic tagging, we won't need to tag as many um, because we will know, you know, the destination and the, what happens to any of the butterflies that we electronically tag. Um, so that will be another revolution to our understanding of uh, migrating butterflies. Well, it's a great book, The Lives of Butterflies, a natural history of our planet's butterfly life. And if you want a nice read, a really exciting read about the whole range of interesting things butterflies all over the world do, you could do worse than get it. Thank you very much for speaking to me tonight, David. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. All the details you need on the lives of butterflies to be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney.